Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, I interviewed Mike Slavin, uh, who works at High Existence and is a good friend and all-around magician and really intelligent, compassionate soul uh, who has a lot of valuable stuff to share in this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I interviewed him when I took a trip out to Boulder a few months ago, and we had a really good discussion. Uh, and I just want to let everyone know that I'm available for consultations if you are going through any sort of painful situation and you want to find out more about how to understand and work with that pain. Um, I've been dealing with chronic pain for about 15 years and um, have gotten about 99% of the way through. Uh, and I've got a lot of techniques and a lot of mental attitudes because it's not about the technique. The technique is essentially just the finger pointing to the moon. Uh, so if you're interested in that, please find me on Twitter and send me a DM at Stuart Alsop III. Uh, again, I'm, t- I'm on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III. Um, and yeah, just send me a message and we'll set up a consultation uh, to see how I might be of uh, assistance in helping you become pain-free. Uh, so have a great day and I hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Mike Slavin. Uh, did I pronounce that right? Slavin. Slavin. Okay. Yeah. That's a great name. Uh, and yeah, you work with high existence. What is your relationship to high existence? What is, what is high existence? High existence is a media publication. It's been around for 10 years that, um, uncovers uh, a lot of interesting concepts related to psychology, philosophy, and psychedelic culture. And I am the current executive director, recently stepped into that role. And it's been a big part of my life for, you know, I found it very early on. And uh, when did it start? Oh, man. Yeah, this year was the 10 year anniversary. So okay. it was, well, it's been, it's been so around it's been for a, quite a while. And it's yeah. been a part of your life for what, nine years? About nine years. Yeah, I was like the 71st member on, on the site. And this is a website that gets like, you know, millions of views Whoa. so it's it's weird how it's all like curled back around that i'm now you and how know. does that feel oh it feels wonderful i'm just hoping to uh you know i see it as this portal in some ways it was like a portal for me it it connected me to people who it like literally changed my physical surroundings the reason i came out to boulder was because of people i had met on on that site and um yeah so it's i just hope to to kind of do a good job and, and continue to, to grow it and, and sort of, uh, you know, try and try and uh, chart the course into the into the next chapter. Let's talk about portals, because that's really interesting. Mm. And the Internet is a portal. Mm-hmm. I was just talking about this earlier today, and it's like a multi, um, it's a Mandelbrot set, like multi, uh, it's nonlinear. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's like there's multiple different webs and like you have first it was just DARPAnet and then it expanded and mm-hmm. to like all these other just kind of Internet uh, uh TCIP, all these network universities network together. Uh, and then now you have things like Facebook, which are like more offshoots of that. And then high existence is like one is, is an offshoot as well, mm-hmm. particularly around spirituality, which is really interesting. Cause that's like, okay. Yeah. You'd be perfect to talk about this spirituality mm-hmm. and technology, technology. What, mm-hmm. what is the relationship between spirituality and technology? How has technology influenced your spiritual practice? Mm, okay. Well, let me curl back a little bit. And, uh, cause of this, this thing related to the portals, I think mm. it's so, it's, it's so powerful and it, it can go like both sort of directions. I think I was talking with, uh, when we were on, on a hike, I was mentioning this briefly yesterday, 
where for me it's like the technology has allowed for like signaling to happen mm. beyond the bounds of my geographic constraints mm. for me to find like-minded people and mm. then in doing that supporting in the further like fleshing out the further realization of these internal qualities that my external environment weren't necessarily uh, mm. doing a good job nourishing and, and cultivating and so i've used the internet as a sort of means to connect with people uh like that mm. so and that kind of extends into uh, an answering of your, of your question to some degree. I think that a big, uh, a huge thing that people struggle with fundamentally is feeling a sense of belonging. And you can use technology as a tool to begin to find uh, these sort of connection points. Now, the issue is if you know you're you're severely traumatized in any way, this can this, this trauma can sort of act as a strange attractor and, and start kind of make you more prone to developing a worldview or belief system uh, that has really like hard in-group, out-group lines. And, and that's when you start seeing like, you know, people being radicalized and wanting to create like ethnostates and stuff like that. Or that's where you get into sort of some of the black holes where this this power, this, this real potential becomes something that is uh, like, you know, really harmful. Um, and so it's, yeah, it can go, I see it can go like either direction, but I guess I can zoom out a little bit more because of the question of, you know, how, how can you use technology to further your, your spirituality? Well, one thing I think is, is, is true is that the information that we have access to is so much more vast um, than, you know, say our parents growing up. I often think about the sort of brick and mortar a breakdown that happened where in the past, if we wanted to go study philosophy, we would have to go to a library or take a class. But if, if we wanted to get like a view that went deeper than even the mainstream perspective that was touted at the time, we'd have to go and look through primary sources and, and just like page through things. And it would just take a tremendous amount of time. And so now we don't have to do that. We're able to search for things and connect dots like in, a, in an incredibly rapid way that was you know, never been available to mm. to people before. And so where in the past, I think the challenge was more connected to not having access to enough information, you know, not being able to get enough like fed in to really enrich mm. your perspective. Now we have so much. much that it's it's the real skills becoming discerning signal from noise, which is a huge part of spiritual practice is yeah. discernment. Yes. Yeah, there's so many ways we could go with that. One is the Google Google as the oracle, essentially, meme, mm -hmm. or Google as the oracle kind of metaphor. We, yeah. we used to, you know, in Greece, they would go to the oracle to ask these questions. And in, and all of us now have our personal oracle that is bright, brighter than all the minds combined of the universe. Yeah. Like, Yeah, and I, I think with regards to, it's so, it's so important to begin to develop this way of thinking, way of relating to the pieces of media you might interact mm -hmm. with, whether it shows up on your newsfeed or it's one of the first things that shows up in your Google search, there's systems of incentives mm -hmm. that are pushing those things out. Um, and you know this intimately because you are a marketer, so you know that this exists. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm also a magician. So, uh. <laughs> and there's, there's like a, a real interesting sort of dialectic between those skills because there are these things that um, magicians obfuscate for, mm. um, for the purposes of entertainment. And there are things that marketers obfuscate, you know, when they're, they're sort of more black hat style stuff mm. where, I mean, I, I heard it described recently as the sort of asymmetric advantage, like these 
social systems are, are literally like hijacking our, our brains mm. and, and keeping us hooked and addicted. It's not necessarily serving us in, in, in the highest in the highest way. So there's a lot, lot to sort of think about and peruse and explore. I feel like there's a... Oh, so yeah, the thing with the, the magician piece, I think it's, it's very important to begin to develop um, it, it looking like a way to look deeper than what's just presented to you. Mm. Anytime you see an article that you read online, you have to understand, okay, somebody wrote this and that person is under a certain kind of pressure uh, and, and that pressure is to put food on their table and continue to survive as, as sort of a very basic one. But it's also to ascend the ladder inside of their particular organization. They want to create content that isn't necessarily high quality, truthful mm. journalism. Mm. The incentives are more, is this it's thing going to catch fire? Is it going to go viral? Is it going to, mm. you know, get us, you know, the incentive system isn't the truthiness. It's the, you know, how how clickable is this mm. content? And we've seen that, you know, in the sort of clickbait era, how that is kind of distorted journalism. Not to say journalism has been this like, you know, pre-internet. It, was, it, it wasn't necessarily some like a gold standard of bearing for truth. Propaganda existed during television, radio, newspaper eras, all that stuff as well. Um, just the incentive systems are different. So I'm always trying to parse like the, the like, the narrative that is being presented from like the underlying like truth that's there. Mm. And one thing that I, I learned from Eric Weinstein is this idea of the Russell conjugation, mm. which is a way that you can frame, you use language to frame mm. how to uh, like, like to basically kind of point someone in the direction of what you want them to think. Mm. And you can do this already in, in the headline. Just think mm. of controversial figure X, Y, or Z, mm. things like that, mm. um, that, sort of already sort of tilt the person in, in the direction of, you know, what you want them to think. So there's these ways of framing that um, kind of lend themselves to getting people to buy into your agenda and your narrative. And these things are, are good to know so that you don't get, you know, swept up in them. And this is not only applicable in um, when reading articles online or watching YouTube videos or one day watching deep fakes and having actual like visual representations of people be faked. Uh, but also important for one-on-one -on -one conversation with another individual where all of us have a public self which we which we uh, display to the world and all of us have a private self and mm. that makes total sense that we should do that. Uh, but uh, uh, same dynamic there in the private self, public self. Some people have very strong incentives never to let that anybody in close to that private self. I mean, all of us have a this essentially like block over presenting our deepest selves to people. Would you agree? Would you, would you say that that's a common human thing? I think that there's a, there's a, uh, yeah, strong incentive for people to create a version of themselves that they feel like would be most liked and, and presenting that self liked, to the liked, world. Liked and respected. Liked and respected. Yeah. And that helps keep them like ingrained inside of the, the sort of social fabric and it could you know one of the lenses you could put on the spiritual path is uh beginning to disidentify with that false self that you've you've sort of been tricked into creating i mean you had you sort of needed to in some ways to in order to like feel safe but beginning to disidentify yeah. with that and beginning to see those processes that kind of get you to like bend and, and curve around the actual truth that you're that you're seeing uh, in the moment so there's 
I see that piece. But there's definitely this dynamic of, of uh, preference falsification, private and public lives, um, especially if, you know, when you think of in a political landscape where if you say the wrong thing, mm-hmm. it's going to get your, your head cut off kind of dynamic, like this whole cancel culture, this, these outrage dynamics. People are much more likely to just keep to themselves, maybe share with a few friends mm-hmm. about what they really think. Mm-hmm. And that's when you, you, you see these surprises that happen in elections where people get blindsided, you know, because mm-hmm. there's a lot that's not being like communicated. It's sort of like this, uh, you know, under underbelly. Does each politician basically have a shadow? Do would you say? Would you like in order to be successful as a politician? Do you need a very dark or not a very dark? How, how would I say this? Do you need a part of yourself that's totally inaccessible so you can create this public persona? Hmm. Hmm. It's an g- interesting question. I mean, I from my vantage point, you know, everyone has a shadow. Um, the one one thing that is probably true, you probably need to have some degree of like, uh, like, narcissistic tendencies in order to bear the weight of mm. being that public personality. Mm. Um, so I, I wonder about that because I wonder if somebody can have a healthy sense of ego, whatever that means, and also create a public image. That it doesn't mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have to be narcissistic, or or maybe they can play that role, play that character, or whatever. I don't know. This is yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think my in using that, I'm I'm because I wouldn't necessarily say that those people have uh, when I, like the narcissistic tendencies doesn't necessarily mean that they're like clinically diagnosable yeah, right. with like All some of kind us of have narcissistic. Yeah. Tendencies, yeah, so there's just there there's some kind of like weight you need to be able to bear, and you need to have this sort of yeah. mechanism of continuing to like uh, see yourself in a positive light. And I think mm. people who are who are diagnosed with those kinds of tendencies, like completely, um, I mean, this is this is speaking from like uh, a sort of pop psychology knowledge. I'm you know by no sense a you know a psychological clinician or anything like that. But I think that there's a a degree to which people need to have this sort of um, this ability to bear the load, especially in today's times when. You see, you know, trolling and all that stuff. You you need to have an internal sense of anti-fragility. And you were talking about, that's a really good point. You were talking about um, Instagram creating high school networks where it's all the network is on Instagram, essentially. That was you talking about that earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the sense of, um, in thinking about when I went to school, and I grew up in an interesting time where right as I was like leaving high school, Facebook was really starting to kick on and we had cell phones, but there wasn't social media then. It was mm. texting and stuff yes. like that. Mm-hmm. And when I was in middle school, it was like AOL Instant Messenger. So it was sort of like these forebearers mm. of the oh, social right. web, MySpace and stuff like that. But now you see, uh, you know, Instagram in particular comes to mind. People who have these metrics of popularity that are externalized and, and quantifiable when in the past that was not something I mean you knew it implicitly through mm-hmm. interactions with the, the social substrate of your school but if you went into you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell the district over who was the most popular because you would have no sense of that and yeah. now it's all on one network you can through the location tagging you can see if there are people who are you know, particularly popular. And I just wonder what that does to, to kids who then have like these real, you can, you can now see your popularity rise before Mm. it was so amorphous and implicit. It's like, I I mean, 
the idea of like, oh, I've gotten, you know, mm. X number of additional popularity points. How do you really <laughs> grasp it's onto that? Quantified. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then it brings up the stress of that, which is that everybody is a politician now, particularly in high school, or like everybody is having that same weight of social pressure. Yeah. You. yeah. Got, you can see how you're polling yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you see, oh, I, this is how many likes I got uh-huh. and, and all that stuff. And it's developed this whole um, phenomenon of a Finsta, uh-huh. which is like a fake Instagram that isn't like that you have that you have for like as your separate account as, as a your- separate account that you put like lower quality material on and mm. like share with friends. So it's it's kind of it corresponds to some degree of this public private thing. Not mm. quite, but there is some parallel there. And then you have your like regular Instagram in which you're presenting, like trying to like really present, you know, as flashy or as Whoa. like, you know, clearly as you can. That's at least my, my sense of it, having talked with some people who are, you know, much younger than I. So, and we were talking about this, this guy earlier, there was somebody in my life who kind of tore through my life and taught me a lot of lessons, but was, those lessons were from a dark place. Uh, and um, he taught me about Facebook is the idealized self. So we put this was five years ago, six years ago. So we create an idealized self and then we put that on Facebook. Uh, and that was fine. Cause it's, cause like that was the beginning of Facebook where we just started putting these idealized selves around. And it's like, yeah, whatever. You know, we don't really know what's going on here. I'm going to forget my idealized self. And now we're to the point where people are so fed up with seeing idealized selves of other people. And then they're, they're fed up of having to create an idealized self and put pressure into that. And so that was actually one of the original thesis of Snapchat was that it was ephemeral. So you could actually have your, actualized self the self that you really are because mm. you knew it would get deleted uh so it's interesting and the way you just talked about is is it the modern example of that which is uh, modern like two three years later um of instagram having two different accounts one mm. your actualized self one your 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 idealized self which mm-hmm. is really interesting yeah I, I think that's the first time i heard that sort of logical leap to developing snapchat and it mm. makes a lot of sense and it offers this I mean, I'll try and articulate this. It's sort of this trend you, you might be able to perceive where we, and we've talked about this recently with the advent of, of language, how mm. that's supported in the development of uh, our capacity to relate to abstract ideas. Yep. Those apps, like, could you share just a, a brief snippet of that to kind of give me some context sure. to further jump in? So writing has allowed us the development of writing as a technology has allowed us as human beings to share, almost have a currency of abstract ideas and engage with abstract ideas as if they were real. Mm-hmm. Before writing, that didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you kind of only dealt with what was real with you for you in illiterate tribes. The, I got this from the book called Range, where this guy goes into illiterate tribes in, uh, I think it was Uzbekistan, and uh, quizzes them on modern tests of abstract thinking. And that's the really interesting point that I'm really glad I'm remembering now is that it's the abstract thought each generation gets tested on abstract thought testing and we keep on getting better we don't get better at iq but we get better at abstract thought essentially Mm. so we're getting better and better and better at working within our minds of abstract thought Mm. get that into the internet writing so all these abstract thoughts like you know i i engage with so many different abstract thoughts that i would not have engaged with 20 years ago because of the internet because of this podcast because of the books I'm reading because of Twitter, all these different things are giving me access to like limitless abstract thoughts mm. basically. And so my mind is, it feels stressful. It feels like we're a- entering an age of acceleration. We're going down this path where it's, it's 
fucking stressful because we're trying to absorb some of us are trying to absorb the the knowledge or like because so like <laughs> this is getting really really interesting mm. so we're you might have seen the the Peter Thiel and Eric Weinstein episode. They talked about how one specialist could have their entire field, could be a specialist in the entire field of mathematics. That no longer exists. You can't have one person be a specialist in mathematics in general. Uh, uh, now specialties within specialties now are too complex for one person to understand. Yet we still have that human need to understand. So I want to understand every, fucking everything, but I can't. There's no way it's going to do it. So how do I make that decision? How do I understand what is the most value for me? What is it? Is it value? I don't know. Is it what, 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 what are you doing in your life? You don't have to, I don't have to go on the spot there, but like how important it is. You Like, how do you quantify what is signal and versus noise? How do you follow the golden thread? Mm. And we could also go back to the original. Yeah. Thing <laughs> yeah. Okay. I want to put a pin in that because yeah. that's a, that's a yeah. great question. Um, so working off from this foundation foundation of the abstract concepts, um, it's, it's something interesting because as you were describing it, I'm, I'm thinking about it and, you know, we have, we had language where like spoken word mm. came first, obviously. And there is something ephemeral about that. You know, like we say the word Stuart and it's like, we can't grasp onto it, but if I can write your name down, all of a sudden now I can put my finger on it. Mm. And there's, there's this like externalization that mm. happens. So now with the development of language, we have the symbol system. And now this the symbol system like is extracted out from from our heads and can be mm. something that is related to as an object rather than just being like embedded in the subject the subject ob- object shift I think there's Robert Keegan concept you know so there's it seems like there's a similar pattern there dynamic now consider the acceleration of that same process in in these different leaps so writing is one thing being able to write something down write your thoughts down or write down your own story but then we take the leap to oh being able to like have a picture of ourselves painted mm. and and now we can see a mm. representation of ourselves or a mirror that, yeah uh, and, yeah and 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 then mm. taking it the next level is photography voice recording video recording all of these things um and then when you inject all of that technology into an interconnected social web that you take with your take you take with you everywhere all of a sudden you have this this like living artifact that is sort of a representation of your identity that is completely abstract mm, that is being is updated you. but is you yeah. and it's so easy to, to sort of make you that with confusion. quotation marks yeah yeah so yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if we're if like part of this what part of what's happening is as we're riding up that curve the 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 abstraction is getting so clear and so like high fidelity that it's it's going we're going to break like we're going to get so tired of it because it's just so it's just it's not the real it's not the real self it's not the real self but it's so seductive and as it gets more and more seductive i think it will be this sort of like well fuck this like we've got to we've got to like break out of this and this might be related to this is this is an inquiry and I, I don't know where it leads but i'm thinking about what would happen in culture if like deep fakes become so um prevalent that we can't we really can't discern if that article was written by that person or that video is actually from that person mm-hmm. and and we have no we have no sense of even this you know 
there's some way in which that begins to become like a nuclear bomb inside of that whole abstract territory. So I would say that that is already existing and that would be a really good description of what samsara already is. It's the cycle of death and rebirth where where, where we are already... I am right now, I'm looking at these beautiful mountains. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at all these different things. I, my mind has created an image where I think I know what's going on. I have no fucking clue what's going on. Like I, I, I this, this, this plant right in front of me, there's so much in that plant, like that I, that I can't comprehend. Everything is a fake already. Like, or not everything is fake. Everything is dumbed down by a perception of hundreds, uh, in order for it to come into my brain and be, be. So where I, everything already is kind of like a deep fake, but it's, I don't know, a natural one. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I feel like that will just kind of bring us back. It'll maybe point to the same place we're already in, which is I'm here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I can't even tell you what happened in the past. Like, like I'm just kind of here and like, I know I'm here. That's, 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 I think, you know, I think I know I'm here. I don't know. Do you know here? You're here? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I'm here, (laughs) but I'm willing to be wrong on that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that is, could be possible there is that with the, if we know, if like, I mean, trust, you can see trust is already being eroded Mm. dramatically when it comes to these legacy uh, forms of, of knowing what is true. Mm. And I think part of that is you see there's this, uh, you know, we have the broadcast media, television, uh, being the sort of within a very thin band describing like this is our take on the world and people more or less mm. will agree with it. And they might be able to get some splinters of, of difference, but the information floodgates hadn't been open for them to really create their own sort of patchwork worldview. Of truth. Yeah. Now we have algorithms that like everyone's kind of in their own bubbles. And mm. getting different kind of informations mm. fed in, and there's this. It's like the, the 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 like that structure that was broadcast TV has gotten like subsumed by this, the the internet um, um, phenomenon, mm. where now the internet is basically pointing out, is like showing behind the curtain, and it's so clear. It's like you know we have this sort of idea of like fake news now, and which was could be viewed as just a, a strategic maneuver on Trump's part to um, kind of sh- like shake away the criticism. But there's also truth in, in the fact that though like the broadcast media outlets have been more or less sort of propaganda instruments for narrative control. And there's, there's usefulness in having like uh, a grasp on a specific narrative. Um, but now we're in this this real state of sort of uh, disequilibrium and, and imbalance because everyone's like, what the hell is mm. what the hell is going on? Like, what is what is actual reality? You yeah. know, and everyone's. But that's an important you know. step. Like, that's a really important step because even in our own personal lives, we have to come to the we have to come to a to a relationship with truth that was not given to us by our parents or by our conditioning by or anything like that. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's a fundamental part of our spiritual practices to or our life practices if you if you if you want to engage with reality as it is we have to uh find out what reality is um which i mean is a big question i don't know how how do you find reality how do you (laughs) i think part of it is um when it when it all gets sort of stripped down it's uh just direct contact with Mm. the the sensorama or you know like or the things that the sensorama is pointing to almost 
Yeah, and it's it's almost like you know mm-hmm. we're absorbing this, what whatever we're experiencing, and I think the like part of it is having these models and frameworks. Like this is the abstract this is the abstract zone of like oh how do I make sense of all of the calamity and all the stuff that's happening in the world? But you can't really come to an accurate perception if you're not like sitting on the ground where you are, mm-hmm. capable of like like build from there. You know, build from like okay. I'm I'm sitting here. I'm feeling the gravity. I'm connected to mm. myself in this moment, and then like and then the environment, and then everything else. Yeah, and mm. and then through that, mm. I think we need probably a lot more like quiet in this world. Mm. People to take time to just see that. Oh, I'm, I'm. What am I feeling right now? What are these? Some of these internal signals. Um, there's a lot of noise that is just people are getting like beat over the head with mm. outrage and fear and all of this stuff mm. and if we can't just oh physically right now i am safe you know it's like these we've found there have been these ways in which our tendencies to be afraid of lions and tigers mm. and, and the snake in the in the bush that's been like we've been hacked into and mm. and the our mm. imaginations have been these like wormholes through which we're implanting these abstract notions of lions and tigers mm. and just making us feel afraid when physically there's we're we are safe in that mm. moment which is so interesting because anybody listening to this right now is safe if you are listening to this podcast you are safe yet most of us i will well, speak for myself for a long time i was walking around with the subtle impression that i was not safe mm. and like and that i was that i and i feel like I'm, I'm not alone in that uh there are a lot of i think a lot of people who just don't have this sense of safety uh but then the thing that came to that was the most helpful is that realizing that that was a product of the past of the conditioning and that that right now if if i can contemplate these things if i can talk about this if we can have this conversation if you can listen to this podcast you are safe all of your me- needs are met like if you have the time to to sit down and listen to a podcast your needs are met you have everything you need um, you are well fed. You are unless you aren't well fed, then you should go get something to eat. But you know, it's like it's all there. It's all mm-hmm. here right now. Like, and we're safe, and we're and unless you're not, and then you need to figure out how to get into safety. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that I think that once once you arrive at that place and can mm-hmm. confront that, then or like you know fully fully imbibe that safety, then the question becomes: Okay, well, sure, I'm safe now, but. Phew, who knows about tomorrow or mm. what about next year? And like, then, then the, the, the future. future casting is what just fills people with so much anxiety. And that's when I think the development, the cultivation of faith and trust in, in a world of, um, that there is some, some sort of guiding benevolent mm. force sort of supporting us in our, in our lives and in our worlds that doesn't mean that everything is good or everything will always be good. Mm-hmm. But even just trying on that frame without even considering it as like a metaphysical claim and, and well, saying, well, I don't actually believe in God. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm not asking you to believe in God. Maybe yeah. I'm asking you to try on a perspective that supports in cultivating trust towards life. Mm-hmm. And when in cultivating that trust towards life, it increases your ability to actually create an environment for yourself that is generative and supportive and will help keep you safe in the future. And I also think there are stoic practices that are really important that can help you transmute the negative, the calamities, the catastrophes, mm-hmm. especially as they haunt you in your, in your future casting, as you think about your story moving forward. 
well, okay, if that's going to happen, I'm going to use that to forge my character, to become something more than I am now. I will use the difficulties that I'm faced with as the, as the, the, the fire that mm-hmm. burns away what is false. And from that place, I become more than I was before facing it. You know, it's like a life without hardship is a life that is meaningless, meaningless in a lot of ways. Um, think about narrative arcs. There's always that dip, the dark night of the soul. There's, there's these unexpected things that make the whole plot a little bit more filled with calamity. Mm. We don't want a life that is completely like calm, still waters, even if, even if we trick ourselves into thinking we do. I don't, mm. think, I don't think we really do. Yeah, that gets to a point I was thinking about and I lost for a second and then I brought back to it, which is that we as individuals, maybe in the West, this might be a whole cultural thing around the world, is that we believe that we identify with the frontal cortex. So we identify with this, this, this default mode network, which is rational, which knows things, which everything like that. But the problem with that framework is that with this identification only with one small part that, and saying that that's the whole part of us, is that there are millions of years of evolution behind us that are mammalian and not only a mammalian, but um, reptilian. Uh, So there are deep parts to us that are acting based on our environment that we are no, absolutely no fucking way of understanding what those things are doing. Uh, And they're regulatory. They're, they're like, they're, you know, shitting, pissing, eating, fucking like, these are all like basic primal drives uh, that drive us. And then this rational brain that we identify with is the thing that says that makes up the excuse afterwards, after our behavior says, Oh, that's why I did that thing. That's, 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 and it fits this arc, but it's all bullshit. It's all like, Mm. it's not, it's not, that's not the thing you want to identify with when you're in an important meeting when you're in an important life situation, your body literally takes over uh, and y- you cease to exist. If you've ever been in a car accident, this is what happens. If you've ever been in a high traumatic experience, this is what happens. You, <clears throat> you cease to exist and your body takes over and does what it needs to do to survive. Uh, so this is a huge problem that I see with most people in the, in, in the Western capitalist society is that they are primarily identified with a small piece of them. Uh, and there are these, like Walt Whitman says, just like you contain multitudes, like you contain things that you have no idea what those things are. Um, so, yeah. Mm, yeah, I agree with that. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And that sort of limited band of eye identification creates a whole, I mean, so many issues, it's hard to track them all down because you're going to have people who feel like they need to uh, sit in the same perspective that they sat in yesterday mm. to maintain this sort of illusion mm. of consistency. Mm. Yep. And that, f- first of all, stalls growth. And it, it also creates a lot of needless friction mm. because people then begin to cling to these, these perspectives because they are like the badges of their identity. One way I've um, sort of, and I th- a lot of these, and I think a lot of this identification comes from place of insecurity and feeling like they, oh, if I could just figure out what the thing is and have like a coherent way of, of just describing the world and like I have, like we want to hold on to our like thoughts about life mm-hmm. in a way that like yeah. cre- generates some degree of safety. Yep. That is, is, you know, illusory and, and won't actually do the job. Like a lot of that stuff will just like break down mm-hmm. under pressure. So I think... Well, and I guess there's a lot to say about this, but the question becomes like, how do you get a listener hearing this? How, how is it that 
a person can begin to invite in the mm-hmm. consideration that what they've been identified with is like they are more than that. Mm-hmm. They're more than that. And I I really love this idea because it can feel scary at first, but it's also incredibly liberating. Mm-hmm. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I've I like to say is that what if you what if the idea of yourself is like a, a middle schooler's solar system diorama? Mm-hmm. And yet you, your true, the true, the truth of who you are, your soul's radiance is actually like the actual solar system. Mm. And the gap between those two things, the diorama and the actual reality is like a, a, a degree of beauty and radiance and magnificence that is so incomprehensible. Like what if that is the gap between your self-perception and the reality of who you are? And if that is true, how would you hold yourself differently? Mm. How would you feel about your ability to contribute to the world? And that isn't to say that you are a solar system among dioramas. I mean, it's like seeing the beauty in others. And if you can see it in yourself, and then you start making this eye contact with people, mm. seeing the light in them, even mm. if they don't see it, like if they haven't been able to access that since yeah. they were a child, mm. then you start to like stir something deep within them that begins to like engage this process. And of, it creates a whole universe of potentiality yes mm. yes yeah so <laughs> so then that brings to mind uh so something i've dealt with quite a bit is uh is fear of of what you're talking about fear of that of that opening up to that existence uh that's inside of me that's way bigger than my m- rational mind can can fully model <laughs> uh uh how would we so, how would we point somebody else to also who also experienced that fear, maybe in a different way, to understand why it's not something to fear? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing to um, fear. One way of putting it may be that fear is never what you think it is while you're in a state of fear. And let's say we're, we're talking about this outside of the context of being like physically attacked and, and all of that stuff. We're just talking about, you know, just general existential sort of latent fear that you're carrying around with you or that might be activated in social situations or stuff like that. One way of or, or another way of putting it would be the fear that kind of keeps you from going after the things that you want in life. It's like um, a... Fear can be like this sort of train that is um, trying to like hit you, you know, mm-hmm. like you're, you're tied to the tracks, trying to like get untied to escape from the, the, tr- the inevitability of the train coming to hit you. Mm-hmm. And say you were even able to get untied, uh, but you couldn't like, you were like, you know, it was one of those, like maybe like a subway train where you can't actually climb out. Mm-hmm. So the train's still coming. It's accepting it's like turning towards the fear and confronting it because even if you don't confront it in this in this like circulation this this representation of it it's going to come back around in a certain in a different in a different way yeah Yeah. so you'll you'll find ways to draw it from like to perceive it and get and get like sort of um mowed over by it and so if you turn towards uh turn towards the fear or like look look the demons in the eyes mm. then then they start to like evaporate. transform yeah. yeah they have they evaporate and that can create um when you move through thresholds of fear that's when you earn faith when we say like 
like just develop faith. It's hard to have faith if you haven't experienced yourself move through these thresholds of fear and not only survive and live mm-hmm. to tell the tale, but, but come out stronger on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it's like fear is a, fear is a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, a great quote from this book, Illusions, is um, uh, there's no such thing as a problem without a gift in its hands. We, we seek problems because we need their gifts. Mm. And if you relate to, most of the times people relate to their fear as something problematic. And it's, well, hell yeah, but that's also something that makes life difficult. And if you, if you really embrace that opportunity, mm. there's something at the core of the fear that is a, is a gem that you can adorn your soul with mm. and wear with pride. That's, that's beautiful. And... Makes me think about, uh, <clears throat> well, one of the most primal fears that most people experience is social anxiety. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned it, and it's one of the, big, the biggest blocker in my life. Um, but then there's this also fear that gets to something deeper, which we could talk about as well, which is you, you talked about you're on this train track, and we all are on a train track, and it's going to end. It's, this is going to end, and... and uh, and so that's the ultimate fear to uh, point to look in the eye um, and also the hardest one because it's like it's the ending of me. It's the ending of this whole thing. Um, which, which one do you want to take, <laughs> take on? Whichever one you want. Let's do, let's do a social anxiety. If it moves to, it moves to fear, then, or it moves to death, then we'll go there. Okay. Uh, social anxiety. Do you experience it? Less and less. Mm-hmm. I still experience it from time to time, but when I was younger, I experienced it in a much, much more vivid, stinging, striking kinds of ways. Mm, interesting. How would that feel in your body? Um, I would get sort of red in the face. That, w- that would be an experience I would have. A lot of uh, kind of butterfly, sort of lightning bolt, storm in the belly type mm. type feeling. And almost the sense of like, I need to get out of here. Yeah. I need to escape. That kind of sensation. Why do people? Why are people afraid of it? Why are people afraid of social situations? I think, well, we're social animals, and um, getting rejected is is something that is uh, really a really challenging thing, mm-hmm. and it may be associated with fear of exile. And, mm. you know, when we were in tribal environments, if we were exiled. If we were, like, ultimately, like, the final rejection, then that could really have a difficult uh, thing on our, on our chances of survival. Mm. You know, our chances of survival would be reduced dramatically. So we want to kind of find the best way to be a part of. And without getting rejected, without getting ostracized. Yeah. Which is the interesting thing now, because now we can get rejected, we can get ostracized, and then there's, like, 500 million more avenues to, to, to find what we need. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh yeah. And being, and to connect it to what I was sharing earlier, like if you get rejected, it's like, okay, Mm. great. You didn't die. (laughs) There are still people in your world who love and care about you. That's good to know. Mm. Now, if you're, if you can like integrate that experience without making that person who rejected you mm-hmm. seem like some kind of villain, mm-hmm. even if they were an mm-hmm. asshole in doing it, mm-hmm. you, you can take this compassionate perspective of, wow, holy shit. Well, they've, 
if they're treating me that way and they couldn't reject me with grace, then there's clearly some stuff that they're they're dealing with in their world. Mm-hmm. You can integrate a story that frames you as like, yeah, I overcame that and I I survived and I'm stronger for it. Then rather than making you know positioning yourself as the victim, I'm always the one who gets rejected. I'm mm-hmm. never never chosen for dodgeball. I'm always or I'm always picked last or that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. It's it's like whoa, if you're always picked last great it's it can be a real value to be underestimated mm. yeah you know there's there's interesting yeah what would you most like to talk about or what what are you most excited about right now hmm well, I'll say a few things. Um, having conversations like this uh, really excite me, and being engaged with high existence is a great opportunity to continue to have these kinds of conversations and to support in pumping uh, musings like mm-hmm. this out into the into the you know the the vortex of the internet. Um, amidst all of the noise, trying to do what I can to at least ensure I can share a bit of signal that might be useful for people, helping them parse and uh, make sense of the world. And with that comes this um, this sense when I think about what's what I like to talk about or what I think is important is we live in a in a culture where we're like living in like a technological wonderland in a lot of ways. I mean the ability to earlier I was on a video chat for like two hours and because I can do that it's so astonishing mm-hmm. I'm able to break past these geographic barriers and and plug into these worlds of other people it's 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 like really astonishing that we're able to do that and there's so many other things like that in modern life it's easy to be sort of asleep at the wheel of the the magic mm-hmm. that we're just swimming in mm-hmm. and easy to kind of not really wield it in a way that Ha, like has reverence for the power of, of these tools. Um, and, and so I think the thing that I invite to your, your listeners is to remember how wonderful this world is. Sure, sure. There's so much that is fucked up and wrong and sad and tragic and we all have our own tragedies and and just difficult experiences and and just like you know we've all had those moments of of darkness and with that it's like don't forget to remember to love life because if you want to make this world a better place doing it from a foundation of solely taking account of all the flaws and faults in this world is a recipe for uh, change that doesn't stick mm-hmm. because the you won't affect people in a way that actually moves them. You have there there's there's a real need for more and more people to to fall in love with this world in spite of its flaws and and in, in spite of all of the the difficulties and 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 challenges that we face. And this is a personal project that each individual needs to engage in and and. I think from this place, the more you can see the wonder, just to sit under a tree and examine a tree and see 
Most people, wherever you are, likely there's a tree nearby somewhere. And just examine that tree for something more than its its parts. Yeah, or its name, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like and this gets into a whole other sort of field of, of the conversation, but we have these labels that uh, mediate between us us perceiving and the world that's being perceived. And I just encourage you to, in, in different ways, drop these, these labels and this tremendous capacity for abstract thinking and, and take mm. the tree out of the category of tree and just examine its treeness and, and just feel the felt presence of that thing in front of you and let it shower you with, with wonderment. It, there's so much magic and uh, just amazing, amazing things to, to be experienced and seen. And, and if only we had the eyes to uh, let the beauty sort of wash over us. So I think that's one of the biggest tragedies of, of this world is all of the beauty that goes unrecognized. Um, so, so, yeah, that's something that that's, I, I that's think exciting. is important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, them uh talked about abstract concepts and and this do you think that this move towards more abstract concepts is more stressful for individuals uh yeah this is this is good i'm glad you are resurfacing this um because another way of, I think, connecting to what you're sharing is, you know, because you brought up the, the piece within that Eric Weinstein, Peter Thiel interview. And think about if you were to be a specialist in current events mm. or, you know, an expert in current events. I mean, mm. the rapid speed at which events are occurring. It's <laughs> like being published about. Yeah. So yeah. it's like every day there's like a new set of trending Twitter topics. Yeah. And that's just examining that one platform. Yep. We have, we didn't have the, the bandwidth or the sort of auditoriums for these kinds of events in the past, mm-hmm. you know, that we could just like, the auditoriums were on the newspaper. There's only so many pages you could print. So there's a natural mm-hmm. limiting function mm-hmm. on those things. Now it's all the time. Limitless. So there's a huge amount of information that's flooding in. And And this gets to imagination, and you brought up some really interesting points about imagination earlier, but there's the abstract quality, and that abstract seems pretty linked to the imagination. You were talking about algorithms burrowing into our imagination. Mm. Um, And I guess, whoa, interesting, there's the imagination gone wrong is delusion, and imagination gone wrong is is gone wrong with quote marks is is, is, uh, pathology, uh, uh, schizophrenia, all these different things. Delusions of grandeur, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's this, and that's the the line of the people have said before, you know, the line of genius and crazy. Mm, and that's it's very thin. Yeah, <laughs> and that's why I like this idea of, of crazy wisdom because it kind of blends this this mm. notion of. And this is the, this yeah. has been a big thing for me because I I worry about this. I worry about the show, you know, because like there are a lot of like exactly like you just said that issue. Uh, and I worry about doing this podcast because I don't want to go crazy and I've, I've talked about it many times before and I don't want to, but, but, but there's the wisdom part. So it's like, okay, no, no, that's, I'm safe because yeah. the wisdom, the wisdom's there, uh, yeah. but I'm crazy. So you know, <laughs> like, like, uh, 
so I don't know where it's going. But uh, yeah. hopefully to a, a valuable place. I don't know where what that word is supposed to be, but yeah, yeah. It's all an exploration, and, yeah. it's, and the crazy part is like being willing to um, go diving, like mm. submerged into the depths of mm. the unknown, and and like like sort of look for the the hidden treasures mm. and and the lost artifacts and the uh, precious metals, you know, mm. underneath the surface, and to and the wisdom part feels to me like the being able to come back with those things, not just get lost in seeking, but mm. bring them back, integrate them, be able to share them in a coherent way. Witness them. And not, and not like let your exploration create a disconnect from you and the world. Um, there needs to continue to be the, the, the boundary. And I think this is in, in mm. having conversations with people, it creates a, a way of continuing that, that connection. And, and that's so, so interesting. I did, like, I didn't even, you know, I didn't listen to podcasts before creating this podcast. And all of a sudden it's like, um, it's just like opened up this whole uh, magical world of like creation, co-creation. We've, we've just, I believe uh, we've developed ideas in this conversation that I had not been previously attuned to. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, uh, and that's really cool. What uh, we got, we got like 10 minutes left. What's talk, let's talk about uh, magic uh, mm. and, and like what it is, what is magic? <laughs> oh, what is magic? Um, that's a good, that's a good question. Magic is, I mean, I want to be cheeky and say just magic is life, mm. you know, and that mm-hmm. I've had this thought before that the only thing that isn't real, really magic in this world is sleight of hand magic. Like mm. the magic that I do is kind of pretending to be magic mm. and, and almost like a, a, it's, it's sort of like a microcosm of something in mm. that. The there's a lot happening in the world and in the universe that shares a lot of these uh, the qualities of sleight of hand or illusion mm. that also feel like magic. Yeah. So there's this concept I think it's Buddhism of Maya, yeah. which is a blending of the meaning of magic and illusion, um, mm. something like that. I, mm. I remember an Alan Watts uh, piece where you know, I was like, oh, that's really fascinating, and I see some of that. You know, the sort of when we look out into the world and perceive perceive what we're perceiving, on one hand it's like stunningly gorgeous, and on another hand, I'm I'm seeing from the perspective of the sensory band that my human bio organism, organism is is equipped to to see with, and 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 that way it's some somewhat of a, a of a construction. You know, it's not like the full, there's always more, you know, and, and that's what I like about what I do with particularly cards is I know that there's more to like, there's some other level Mm. and there's something, there's something deeper going on than just what's being seen. Mm. And there's something really pleasurable about what's being seen, Mm. but I've sort of Mm. endeavored to hit that next level. And I think having all of these experiences over and over and over again in my life where I uh, am performing. And very, it's very clear to me that there's like the reality that's being perceived on the spectator side and the reality that I am uh, sort of living in in order to generate that perception is, is such an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic and it's sort of sculpted my, my interior sort of thought processes to try to like dig past 
and like tr poke holes in just what is like the, the, the sort of present appearances of things mm. and want to go a few layers deeper and look for those layers deeper where I feel like if someone hadn't had the kind of exposure to that dynamic over and over and over again, like I have, mm. they might be less, less prone to go looking. So there's that piece. And another big part of, of my whole, whole sort of magic thing is like shuffling cards. It's, it's interesting because it's sort of become its own art form in my, in my lifetime. It's called cardistry. And these guys are amazing. And it's, it's become its own thing. There are a lot of people who do cardistry and don't perform magic. I happen to do both. And there's something I find really interesting that I like as an analogy because there's a lot of cardistry maneuvers that are, are unique to me. Like I invented them. And what I think is interesting about it is the process of discovery in which I might just be shuffling the cards and then all of a sudden, spontaneously, I do something I've never done before. And it's just a little bit of a movement. It's like this happy accident where I'm like, oh, there's something here. There's something cool here. And I find this little, this little interesting strand and I just start pulling on it. And over time, I, it like shaves away and it becomes something more refined and then it mm -hmm. reaches this point of completion where it feels like a finished product, a finished maneuver, its own, its own like work of art. And I think there's something that I, you can, there's wisdom in that to borrow and to apply to the process of generating solutions for uh, getting, you know, getting ourselves to a better, like living in a better world and, and resolving, you know, any number of the problems that you, you want to put your finger on um, is, is sort of, first of all, assuming that we don't have, like, if you think we have the adequate set of solutions mapped out, I think you're probably sorely mistaken. There's a lot of devising solutions and exploring the options that needs to happen. And when you can consider like, oh, we just need to engage in the process of just being, you know, almost in a, in a free state, almost a playful state. It's serious in a way, but it's also very playful to f just discover things. And when you, f there's, and then part of the discernment is, oh, that's something interesting. Let's keep exploring this but and working it. with it over time. You don't know it though. And you don't, you don't ever know that thing. You, you've always got to kind of remain a little bit skeptical of, of, of that. Like, oh, I know what this is. Yeah. That, oh, that, yeah. That's a, what's the, what's the best word? That's sacroiliac dysfunction or that's tendonitis or that is complex pain syndrome or that is PTSD or that is like all, like all of those are just kind of like temporary labels to describe something that is much, much deeper and the problems go much, much deeper than that label. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. Yeah. So we can begin to sort of unpack those things. I think uh, I've, I learned a this phrase from Brett Weinstein, which I think conveys the idea I'm trying to communicate very concisely, and I'm paraphrasing him, but something to the effect of the solutions that we, um, like the solutions aren't going to be designed, mm -hmm. but they can be discovered. Oh, interesting. And so it's, uh, yeah. it's really taking, it's not taking for granted that we have the fullest information that we need right now in this moment to be able to assemble the complete picture. That's sort of utopian, that's utopianism. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like, we, no, we, we know where that goes. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that we don't have that full, full like information set. And the best we can do is begin like, you know, discovering and teasing out these threads and then sort of slowly 
allowing ourselves and to discovering. I really like that the problem of, of like and it's like almost like you, there's a statue or there's there's a piece of marble and you got to whittle away and find the statue within the marble kind of thing or yeah. uh, the idea of instead of rules there are, there are no rules there are principles mm. humans create rules uh, but but there are principles of nature that you can't you can uh, hit your head you can run into over and over and over again until <laughs> you realize that they're principles uh, uh, but try try stating you know, 10 principles that are, that are, that are, have no edge cases or anything like that. Like mm. it's a, it's a really difficult thing. I can't figure out how to do it. Uh, uh, it's putting that back into abstract language, like trying to, trying to create those principles and then putting them in abstract language. I have not, I have not been able to figure out how to do that. Mm. Um, uh, and well, what, one other piece that, uh, is connected to this yeah. that I really love and just, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, man, there's something so important here. And I, uh, this is an idea that I, I heard from a brilliant thinker by the name of Forrest Landry. And it's this distinction between choice and decision. Mm -hmm. And to zoom out for a second, I first of all love the exercise of finding synonyms mm -hmm. and then like creating nuance between these words that we would typically treat as, uh, you know, meaning the same thing. But the way that he... Mm -hmm he conceptualizes of decision and choice is decision is like cutting away, decide. And it's almost like you um, have the a preset of options you've already, that are already there. And m most of the time it's going to be a binary and an either or, and then you cut one away and, and you're left with the, one. the option. Mm -hmm. But choice is a process of expanding the option space until the best option reveals itself mm. to you mm. and now even if um you know sometimes decision is the right thing because you don't have the time or the luxury to really explore the option space in its fullness um but i just like i like this idea because it, it just gives us the opportunity to say okay there's more than than is being considered here mm. The analogy that he used that I thought was really wonderful was, you know, uh, decision is kind of being in the underneath the the, the uh, street light. Mm. Your your mm. the range of illumination that you're exposed to is is you know is limited and fixed. And choice is like having a flashlight. You're able to walk around and explore and and really, you know, come up with new combinations of things. Mm. And I think that's something worth trying on. And the that goes back into meditation about focus and focused awareness as opposed to the broad stream awareness, which is a whole nother topic. Uh, I think I might be running out of steam though. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, uh, but that was, that was brilliant. Uh, this is one of this may, may be the best episode I've ever done. Um, uh, what, how can people find out more about you? Find out more about high existence. Um, Find out more about me. I mean, there isn't much about me personally online, but if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at mslavin, S-L-A-V-I-N. And uh, yeah, go on highexistence.com. We have tons of articles, wide-ranging content. Um, it's it's really a, a wonderful resource that I've benefited from over the years. Mm -hmm. it, to me, it was this gateway into having at least one-sided, sometimes... Um, you know, back and forth conversations uh, where I was in an environment where I, I couldn't, there weren't, there weren't people around me who were necessarily interested in exploring these things. So it gave me an outlet and a venue in which to explore. And so if any of the ideas that 
we've discussed are compelling or have some gravitational pull, I just encourage you to, you know, go on the site and, and look around and explore those 10 years worth of articles on there. Probably something that you haven't heard before. So um, you guys got retreats too, right? Yeah, we have retreats. Uh, it's very likely we haven't announced the official date on our next retreat, um, but we will be hosting it in Costa Rica. Mm. And um, it's also a podcast, the High Existence Podcast. I host sometimes John Brooks, who's one of our creators at High Existence, uh, hosts m- most of the podcast episodes. But yeah, there's mm-hmm. a lot of just great, rich content. If any of this stuff resonated, I'm sure you, you can find something mm-hmm. worthwhile there. But yeah, I just appreciated your, your invitation and yeah, I'm glad we were able to I'm do glad this. We did this yeah.